Good afternoon. This is Bo Buchanan, Arizona Lodge number two, and I am sitting here speaking on the level with Vic Olson. Vic, I usually start out by asking people to tell me your name, the name of your Blue Lodge, and any titles or roles you have in that lodge. Brother Bo. <laughs> My name is Victor Edward Olson. I'm a member of Arizona number two, Freed Accepted Masons Lodge of Arizona. I am currently the junior steward. And what else do you do? Well, I has been Tyler for two years. I'm a cook extraordinaire. He cooks everything. He cooks <laughs> all the meals. Having fun with that, amazingly enough. And uh, I am president of the Temple Board, uh, which uh, manages our building, historic building, and I am a member of the York Right Chapter and Council, not yet a Knights Templar. Templar. So you're you're pretty busy. <laughs> well, you know, it's something to do. <laughs> so when did you one of my one of the coolest questions I like to ask is when did you first become aware of this thing we call Freemasonry? <clears throat> Uh, I had a client, this is probably in 1990, a client, uh, his name's Lowell Andrews, great man, he's a priest right now of the Anglican Order of the Catholic Diocese in Payson, Arizona, has his own church. Uh, I met Lowell doing some work for his school, he had a school for boys in Phoenix on Osborne Road, and it was for guys that were just trouble in school, and he started this school to turn them around and get them into college, and it ended up being a very popular prep school here in town, St. Paul's Academy. But he impressed me as a person. You know how you meet some people, and, and they just impress you as someone who's got it together? Um, over the years, I did a house for him in Payson, and... Uh, over the years, he just mentioned that, that he was a Mason and he would have Demolay guys up there, you know, clearing his land and things like that. And uh, also, as an architect, I traveled downtown Phoenix often for business. So I would park in, in different areas and I would go by that temple, uh, you know, sometimes two, three times a week, leaving or coming to downtown Phoenix to do business. And uh, the real story here is one Wednesday before Thanksgiving, I finished some business at the uh, city of Phoenix. I uh, had parked in front of the temple that time, and I got a parking ticket. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, great story. Got a parking ticket, and I thought, well, I got a parking ticket now. So I said, I want to see that building. So I walked up. It's Wednesday afternoon. Before Thanksgiving, walked up to the building, knocked on the door. Martin comes out, our friend Martin, um, Brother Martin. And I said, I'm an architect. I've seen this building for 30 years. I really would like to see what it looks like inside. He says, yeah, come on in. And he gave me this <laughs> phenomenal on, tour. Here. Gave me this phenomenal tour. And uh, after that tour, I got back in my car and started driving to uh, my house. Thanksgiving Eve, and a problem that was given to me in college came, the answer to that problem came to me out of the blue, literally out of the blue, and the the problem was 
a statement by a history professor that said all ancient architectural monuments uh, are some derivation or come from the origin of a form of a square and a circle. Oh, right. I've seen this. You see my, my little geometry your, talk? Your yeah. geometry talk, okay. Yep. And uh, he didn't tell us how to construct a square and a circle. He just said that's where the origin of that architectural monuments would come from. And he gave that to me uh, 70, 1972, and then I'm down there in 2013, and it just, boom, hit me. I mean, it was like a bolt of lightning. Literally, I considered it a gift. 25 years later or something? Yeah, and I'm, that night, I'm out, I've got a stick with a piece of chalk on the end. I'm in the middle of my street drawing circles. It looks like, you know, we had aliens that next morning in the, in the neighborhood. And uh, it was true. I mean, it, you could actually construct these geometric uh, things perfectly uh, with very simple implements. And then I studied a little bit more online, and it's called sacred geometry. And I found out that one of the symbols that's created is this, from that same square in a circle is the... Uh, Star of David or the Seal of Solomon, then I find out Solomon is the original Grand Master of Freemasonry by our uh, traditions. So I had to become a Mason. Wow. So from the time that you got the tour, <clears throat> excuse me, from the time that you got the tour of that building, when till you became a Mason, what was the, how long did that take? Uh, well, actually, um, Probably, you mean the the accepted apprentice, entered apprentice, or yeah, when did you come back? When did you come to your first meeting? When did you walk in the door and start pursuing it? Uh, about two weeks later. So two weeks, so pretty quick turnaround. Yeah, okay. I, w I was literally showing that circle and square diagram to somebody different every day. I did it for two years. <laughs> every day, I and did I it. see you doing it every time you can at live. Every so. time I can, I showed it to three nuns on the freeway at Bakersfield, California. <laughs> I showed it. I mean. I've shown that to Charlie Keating, you know, a great developer here in town from the 80s. He said it was the most interesting. He'd been working with architects his entire life, and he said it was the most interesting thing he'd ever seen. Hmm. So it was one of those things where it was, it was a bolt of lightning. It was a bolt of lightning to me. So two weeks later, you walk in the door, and then you started marching towards uh, becoming a master mason in, in Arizona, number two. Yep. And what uh, yeah. year was that? So when were you raised as a Mason? I was uh, raised in April of 2013. So you've literally only been a Master Mason for three years. Now working on your third year. Yeah. yeah, working on your third year. Wow. Yeah. It's amazing when I talk to a lot of the guys in our lodge right now that in Masonry, they're all, all pretty young. I mean, there's a lot of older guys, but we got a young, a young crowd. Yeah. So what was it that drew you to masonry? What was it that made you want to join masonry? Uh, besides that lightning bolt, I've been a lost person ever since probably junior high. I had a, um, I was acolyte in the Episcopal Church. And I did all that kind of stuff. And uh, I came to this conclusion that uh, if God created everything, God created everything good and bad. And I couldn't fathom that. I couldn't get it anymore. I didn't understand it anymore, you know. So I dropped out of that whole thing, and I had a priest tell me, you know, for the rest of your life, you know, if you're not going to be involved in the church, just live the law of love. And so from that point until 
uh, I joined masonry, that was my standard. That's what I kind of followed as how I would, you know, direct myself. So I went through a bunch of self-help seminars. I've been a Baptist, <laughs> checked out the, you know, the Jewish faith. Checked out all the religions. Yeah, you know, and it was sort of like nothing really explained anything, and I've come to the conclusion that it's never going to explain it because I'm Gnostic by faith. So my my faith is that God absolutely does exist, but I am just never going to be smart enough to comprehend that concept. So I just have to do it by faith. And for me, that faith is, I believe, you know, I believe. And, uh, you know, anything you tell me that supports my belief, you know, I'm all on board with. Anything you kind of say that doubts my faith, I discard it. That's the way beliefs work, you know. <laughs> okay. You know, you, you got to support them. Is there, um, other than your friend that you talked about, who is kind of the one who led you to masonry, the, the priest, I think you said it was, yeah. is there anybody who stands out to you uh, as an example, the, as someone who upholds the ideals of Freemasonry or someone who has really made a big impact on you in masonry? Oddly enough, my dad. And the Ooh. real oddly part of that is I did not know my dad was a mason. Until I didn't know your dad was a Mason either. Until after he had died. No way. That's the honest God truth. I didn't know he was a Mason until after. I didn't know his dad was a Mason. I didn't know my grandfather was a Mason. I didn't know my great grandfather was a. They were Holy all Masons. How they were all Masons? It wasn't discussed. It was kind of like that old, you know, fifties, nineteen fifties, not secret organization, but very, very private. You know, if you're not in, you're out. Kind of. Wouldn't thing. get away with that today with the internet. <laughs> No, but I, my father, um, there's a picture of him right there in his uh, Navy uniform. Oh, wow. was a cool guy. He was a beach bum in Los Angeles and uh, joined the Navy at 17, was in the military for 20 years, and he was always um, fair. He was always honest. He was always genuine. He was always fun. He was all, you know, I just remember my dad... In this kind of um, great man sense, he was just a great man, but he wasn't, you know, he didn't move or shake the world. He was just a great man, something I aspired to. I always respected him, and then when I found out he had been a Mason, uh, wow! I said, "All right, I'm in." <laughs> Let's see if we could straighten my life out. What? Uh you talk about why you wanted to join. You were lost in the in the almost three years that you've been in masonry. What is what has it done for you? What kind of impact has it made on you as a person? Direction. Direction. You know, we all. I think everybody has a certain amount of. I can't remember what I was listening to recently, but everybody has a certain amount of. Oh, it's the movie The Martian. Or everybody has this interest in doing something for somebody else. Okay. We have all sorts of vehicles we can use. We can use the church. We can use Salvation Army. We can use, you know, your change out of your pocket and to the guy at the corner on the street. But we all have this kind of um, impulse. I think it's an impulse to do something for somebody else. And not for gratification. I think part of it's because people have done things for us in the past. So you have this kind of, I want to, return the favor, pay it forward, however you want to look at it. Right. But I think we all have that. And it's given me that vehicle. 
you know, that vehicle now to do that sort of thing. So like when I make meals for the lodge on Tuesdays and I get, you know, 20 or 30 guys saying, wow, that was a great dinner. We don't often get bacon, lettuce, and tomato sandwiches for dinner. <laughs> that was great. Yeah. You know, it it feels good and it feels like I've done something. Right. You know, I, I designed buildings. I've got some buildings in, in town I'm pretty proud of. Uh, and those are cool. Um, but I can relate it to the story I heard about Ronald Reagan, President Ronald Reagan, who said, um, of everything he did in pres- as president, okay, the thing that he was most, one of the most proud moments of his life was when he was a lifeguard and he saved someone's life by himself. It was him and another person. And I see that a lot with Freemasonry, with brothers, you know, talk. And right. It's it's me, we're together, you know, we're, it's, it's a very um, open and uh, willing kind of connection. I, I like to say that one of the reasons wh- why I think it's successful today or drawing people today is when you look at all the technology and the things we talked about, the things that distract you from yeah. life, masonry is one of those chances to actually connect, connect to people in, on a yeah. one-on-one connect as real people and human beings outside of all the other crap going on in yeah. life today. Yeah, and plus you can get you can like forego some of that other stuff for a while. Yep. You go down the lodge, you know, can't use your cell phone. <laughs> the computers aren't even there. <laughs> you know, do we have Wi-Fi? So I think we have Wi-Fi. <laughs> we do have Wi-Fi. <laughs> but I mean, you basically leave that behind and you get back to people things. Right. People. Yeah. yeah. People are real important in it. And uh, I think the other thing that about it that it hits me is that charitable nature, the idea that, you know, brotherly love, relief, and truth is our, our principal tenets. I feel honored when, you know, we walk in the parade for the Veterans Day. I feel honored when we uh, show up and I wasn't there, but when we, you know, give bikes to the kids. You know, I, I feel like I've honored the fact that I am part of an organization whose intent is that. It's not like a byproduct. That's our intent right. to do that stuff. So tell me about, you mentioned Bike for Books, you mentioned Cooking in the Kitchen. Can you tell me another um, memorable time or event or something that happened that kind of sticks out in your mind? The funerals. You've been there. Yes. Um, the, for those who don't know, uh, every brother is entitled to a Masonic funeral at his demise. And uh, a Masonic funeral, I didn't know what they were. Right, neither did I my first time. And when I found out my father had been a Mason, and then after he had died, uh, there was no Masonic funeral there because it just wasn't done. It was just kind of like put aside. Nobody made an issue. Um, I decided I needed to go and and participate in these Masonic funerals because, number one, you agree to do that as part of, you know, know, care for widows and orphans. Um, So I went to my first Masonic funeral with our worshipful master, um, and I think there were four other guys there. I think there was a total of five of us there. Really nice church here in town. We uh, were second up, so the the third up. First part was uh, the priest did his faith, their uh, ceremony. Then there was a period where all the sons and, and daughters and and friends got up and said, oh, you know, we, 
this guy was had something to do with Phoenix newspapers, and he managed a bunch of newspaper routes. So he brought a bunch of guys who threw newspapers when they were kids and became, you know, members of society as they grew up. He's an old guy. And it's all very lighthearted and, and uh, very um, respectful. Was this the one yesterday? You did no, this is this is like three years well, ago. Oh, okay. I hadn't been Mason for more than maybe, <clears throat> I don't know, six months, and I jumped into that one. So then it's our turn. So we march up there and start reading the Masonic funeral um, ceremony. And the whole crowd who've been so, you know, happy and kind of jovial up to that point, the whole crowd turns down like you cannot believe. <laughs> I'm in the front and I've got my staff and I've got the wife and the daughter and the son sitting right in front of me, looking up at me. Not the guy that's reading, they're looking up at me and they're crying. Aww. Because they saw the respect. And I didn't know this guy. I mean, I, I, this guy was 90-something. You know, I didn't know this guy. He was just a brother. He was just a brother, and we promised to do that. Yep. And uh, that made an impression on me. So I, I do as many Masonic funerals as I can. Not to watch people cry, but because I think they really appreciate it. No, I think it's important. And some people won't do them and have this weird thing about death, So, yeah. uh, and it doesn't bother me, so I like to do them anytime yeah. I can as well, yeah. for sure. One of the things that I remember... One of the things that is most memorable for me, actually, is something that you did and organized, which was the table lodge. Oh, yeah. I just remember that when I think about that table lodge, to me, when I think about old world Freemasonry, when you think of, we were talking earlier, thinking about all these old guys sitting at lodge, to me, that table lodge is kind of in that realm, you know, it's that yeah. romantic bunch of guys sitting around, banging the table, here, 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 right? Yeah. Tell, tell us a little about the table lodge and, and what you did there. <clears throat> well, the first thing I want to say about the Table Lodge is, and this is probably with you too, I now, for all these things I go through Freemasonry, I almost always have a tuxedo as my change of clothes in my car. <laughs> so I feel like James Bond. You know? <laughs> but um, the Table Lodge supposedly is, the basis of it is a once-a-year event to honor a, a variety of things. We honor God. We honor the master of our lodge. We honor um, widows and orphans by just cheering them. And it's all it's just, just a cheer for them, you know. It's just an honor cheer kind of thing. Um, the, the neat thing about that was, uh, for me, was um, early, early on, I thought that it needed a theme. And so the theme... I came up with this was, was one of the cool parts is you put all this thought into the name, the yeah. theme, the design. I mean, yeah. that was really part of what made it special. But I'm sorry, go ahead. And, and it was about relevance. You know, how is this organization from the 1700s and earlier relevant today? What makes it relevant today? You know, how can it stay relevant today? Because I think that's one of the problems with its um, uh, public face right now is most people think, ah, yeah, it's a bunch of old guys. They don't have anything worthwhile to pitch in. I can get everything they've got on the internet. And so relevance was the theme, and, and that's when I came up with that graphic, which I still keep. I see it on the wine bottle. Yeah, across yeah the on the wine bottle. Yeah. Uh, that graphic where I said, you know, this square and compass theme 
is really about geometry. What about geometry fascinates me about it? And, and I came up with that graphic, which uh, um, you know some people think looks like something out of Star Wars, and some people think it looks demonic. But and if you really look at it, it has a tremendous amount of interesting geometry to it. But the relevance, and that was part about being relevant. I mean, that's a computer-generated graphic versus the square and compasses, which were all about a conceptual perception of geometry. So that was my thing. Jim May, most worshipful brother Jim May, gave the talk. You were there. Mm-hmm. Yep. And it was about, you know, his talk was, this isn't your grandfather's Oldsmobile. And he wasn't saying... It's better than your grandfather's Oldsmobile. He was basically saying, your grandfather's Oldsmobile, it's dead and gone. You know, the only thing that's going to make this thing move ahead is what these guys sitting out here at this table lodge direct to do. And I love that self-directed thing. We have a lot of tradition. We have a lot of history. But I like that self-directed aspect of it. Is there anything when you say self-directed, you know, that means things change, right? They should change, I think. They should change. So that being said, was there anything different than about Freemasonry when you came in than, than your preconceptions when you when you joined? Hmm. Different. Nothing pops to mind. Yeah, nothing pops to mind. Nothing I mean, really? Because I was I was completely uninformed. You know, like I said, I, I did that thing and then two weeks later I uh, did some research on the internet and then I just showed up. So I was I didn't have any preconceived notions about what it was. <laughs> Tell me, uh, so you're a temple manager and uh, our, our temple building in downtown Phoenix is uh, about 90 years old, and we're approaching the 100-year anniversary. That's right. Tell me a little bit about how did you end up in that role? Why did you take that on? And, and what do you see as uh, in the future of the temple building? Uh, <clears throat> well, first and foremost, I think it's a structure that desires to be uh, part of the community and stay part of the community. It was built with the... Um, intent to be an important part of the community in the 20s. So that was his intent. Um, it's got some great things about it in terms of architectural character. Not, It's not stellar, I would say, as an architectural uh, historical place, but it is good, you know, as, as good comes as a standard. Uh, and it's got some great, you know, those paintings in the Blue Lodge of uh, the, the, those paintings are probably... 10 feet wide, 12 feet tall, the different uh, scenes from parts of our ritual, which absolutely need to be preserved. Um, I realize those are painted on canvas and nailed to the wall. Uh, they're not, they're, I think they're glued. Oh, maybe wall. glued. I know the one behind uh, in the east actually has a couple. Yeah, of that one was, yeah. Nails yeah. holding, brads or something holding it yeah, to the wall. Yeah, they actually had to take them off with snake oil when they got it. They fixed a crack <laughs> in the wall one. Really? Wow. Yeah, well, that's the only thing that would get it off the wall. Oh. But um, the, the temple, as an architect uh, and as a historic building, I felt needed uh, help. You know, structurally, it has a couple issues that need to be addressed. Uh, functionally, it has a couple issues that need to be addressed. It turns out that the architect that I worked for, my second job in town, Lesher and Mahoney, were the architects for the original building. Shut up. Yeah. 
Uh, that is cool. I didn't know that. I mean, huh. until I until uh, our brother Paul Dory showed me the drawings for the original building. It was a competition in the twenties. Two architects. I thought I brought those down. You might have seen it. I saw the drawings, but I didn't realize A. You worked for the architect. B. I didn't know there was a contest, and they won it. Yeah, there were two. There were two designs, at least that I'm aware of. Two designs presented. One of them was a very kind of Egyptian motif. Oh, that's right. I did see that. Yeah, yeah. and the other one was this kind of Federalist motif that's there now. Uh, but the building, I think, is worth saving. You know, I think it's worth having yeah, I agree. in downtown Phoenix as a symbol of you know what the Shakers and Movers did in the 20s. You know, if you go back to uh, New York and you go back to, you know, that whole northeast part of the country, in the 20s, you know, the roaring 20s, there was so much money flowing. These buildings that these guys built were phenomenal. You, you've probably seen some of them. In San Antonio, Texas, there's a Scottish Rite temple built in 1924 or 25 as well. That building, those, these are in... in San Antonio, these are all these really rich cattle barons just kicking money to the Scottish, right? Like you cannot believe it's built with, you know, the finest marble. It's got these beautiful plaster bas-reliefs all over the building. It's just unbelievable building. You know, this building in downtown Phoenix was built by a bunch of farmers. So it's a different economic class even that built that, but they wanted to build it, you know, as good as they could because they were making their money selling cotton. And at the time, it was, uh, from what I've been told, it was one of the tallest buildings in downtown Phoenix. Right. <clears throat> the auditorium was, they would have vaudeville acts coming in, you know, when it was uh, in its heyday, they would have vaudeville acts come in and perform in auditorium as uh, the shows of town. Wow. Yeah, and I think it's as we approach, we've got 10 years, and one of the things we started doing recently that I've been heading up is selling the bricks out front to give people an opportunity to, to commemorate a family member and themselves. And kind of what I really want to see is we have 10 years now to start building and restoring that temple. And I think that if we make that plan over the next 10 years that we could restore that to its former glory and really make really fix every single thing that needs to be done in that place and make it a jewel of masonry in phoenix yeah it's you know in a week we're having our brothers and friends doubles tournament the bfd yep. tournament yep we're gonna raise a couple bucks maybe um but the idea is that the second floor of that building i don't know if you saw this but when i found the drawings for the original building the second floor which is this big um it was a very big open floor was filled with pool tables and poker tables when you were conducting business in downtown Phoenix back in the 20s, you know, and, and 30s, if you wanted to take a break, you went over to the lodge, you sat in like a good old, you know, lodge chair, lounge chair, smoked a cigar and talked about where you're going to build the next dam. You know, that's <laughs> what that building was about. It was about how men got together yep. and made something better. And I think it's, that's something you should preserve. Yeah, and I think it's, you know, I've heard a lot of, uh, talk about, you know, like you said, is masonry relevant? And one of the things that rings true to me is that men don't have the opportunity many times just to socialize and get to know other men. We've taken away a lot of those opportunities. The way society has grown and moved so fast that we need that opportunity to come back together as men, just like every group, just like mm -hmm. women need a chance to get together or children or men and women in certain places need a chance to be able to socialize and get together. It's important for each of these groups to have that place and time or that place that they can get together, and that's what masonry is for men. You know, our, our good brother Tim Everhard, 
you know Tim, mm-hmm. um, ex-military guy. He said once, you know, something like many hands make short work. Um, you know, you can think about the way society works, where you've had these great movers and shakers in the past, individuals, you know, really driven men who, who are either, you know, really well funded or really well connected, and they make things happen in the community on a large scale. And I think, you know, back when people would say, oh, the Masons are running things, the Masons are, you know, going to overthrow the government, they're going to overthrow the church, they're going to do that. I think what they were doing back then is they were getting together because they all knew it was in their best interest to make the world a better place. Yep. And they knew if they got together and did it together <clears throat> with the right attitude, which wasn't, I'm going to rape the land, I'm going to take my spoils and I'm going to head off for the Bahamas kind of attitude, um, they were going to turn it into their community. I think that's where these Masons built that, why they built that building and why they were so tied in with the community. And we should, we should all take that as a, a model. I think we can. We need a building we can be proud of so that we can kind of show off. Though. I agree. That's one so talking about that old building, one of the things I want to transition to is I'm sitting in your apartment with you today doing an interview, and when I walked in, the first thing I noticed is this giant antique framed oil painting leaning up against your wall. And for people to understand how big this is, this thing has to be five, six feet tall, four and a half feet wide. It's it's gigantic. It's in this giant ornate gold frame, and it's a, a framed oil painting of what looks like an old Russian or Prussian officer or something in this purple cloak and this purple drooping hat, and he's got this full facial hair. And you know this dog in the corner? I didn't. Oh, he's got a dog next to him, and his, he's got these bright blue eyes just staring right out at you, and the dog has a medal around its neck, and With I don't... The circle and square emblem in the middle of it. Oh, really? Okay, so tell me, tell me a little bit about this painting. Why? Where did you get it? Why is it here? What's this? What's this thing mean to you? Uh, so you hit it. It's a portrait of a Prussian doctor from 1842, and uh, it was a gift from his parents. He's royalty in uh, Prussia. Uh, it was a gift from his parents when he graduated from medical school. So you see the maquette over here on the side. Right, and the, the skull, skull and the books. Yep, yep. So he was a doctor. His thesis is on laryngitis. So in the University of um, Berlin, which was, I think, then the Frederick Wilhelm University. How do you know all this? I researched it all. You researched it all. So you, so how did you this painting come out? Okay, so discussion? this is my great, great, great grandfather. Get out. No, it's my, that's who it is. His name was Felix Friedrich Brockt. You know what's funny is when I walked in, there was something about his eyes that made me think of you. I'm a little bit of blue. A like little that. bit of blue, yeah. Okay, so it's your great, 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 great grandfather. This is your great, great, great grandfather? Yes. Okay. And um, it is, uh, um, like I said, from 1842. He was a German immigrant from uh, that period in a group that traveled to South Texas uh, as part of a movement called the Adelsbaron, which was um, this uh, Prince Saul Holm Bromfels or something like that. I think that's his name. There's a town in South Texas called New Bromfels, 
Okay. I know someone who lived yeah. there. <laughs> so it was all these Germans that were immigrating to South Texas to basically build a new Germany. So, you know, America was on the East Coast. The Britons were on the West Coast. The, the French were up north in Canada. The Spanish were down in Mexico. So the Germans said, we're going to sneak in right here in the middle <laughs> put our spot in South Texas. Wow. And so it was a group of immigrants. They bought a tract of land from the Mexican uh, government and, and set up all these colonies basically. And there were a bunch of farmers. He was a doctor, ends up being a farmer. Um, I have it now because used to hang in my, in his house there in uh, North San Antonio. Then it went to his son. Then it went to his son's son, his son's son, his son's son. And then uh, when my aunt died and, and my family basically ended up leaving San Antonio completely, uh, it was sort of like, well, what are we going to do with this portrait? You know, my mother goes, I don't want it. You know, it's just weird. It has the eyes that follow you around. I said, no, no, I want it. Because his brother, his brother wrote a book called Texas in 1848. And I have a copy somewhere. And it's a book about how to immigrate from um, Germany to Texas for these Germans who were just going to leave their homeland. It says, all right, you, you need this much money. You go to Bremen, Germany. You take this boat. You pay this much for your food. You pay this much for your fare. You land in Galveston, which was then in Indianola. Is it written in German? It's been translated into English. It's translated into English. And uh, you buy this many cows. You buy this many horses. You get this wagon. You get these shovels. I mean, it's literally how to immigrate and succeed. And they oh. would go to these East Texas places and, and farm cotton and whatever. So, uh, so I inherited it. And uh, did the research on it. And in wow. fact, uh, one of the things this kind of ties in with that bit about the temple. Um, a couple of years ago, I wrote a, a little paper called The Genealogy of a Portrait. And I went through who this guy was, where he came from, how it got to me. And I included pictures of his, I went to his grave in, in Texas, found his grave. Oh, my God. Found his brand that he would brand his cattle with. In a really cool book called uh, Texas Brands of 1850 or something like that. And so I got all these um, bits and pieces of his family. I got the manifest from the ship he came over uh, from Germany on, how his family traveled later. And uh, I wrote this kind of um, genealogy of a portrait letter for all my family. And I gave it to him as a Christmas gift in oh, 2012. That's cool. Because I want one of them to want it. To carry this, yeah, this to carry on. history on. Yeah. And uh, his brother, you know, was Victor Friedrich Brock. They all named this, their parents named their, um, their kids after Frederick, uh, King Frederick, who was a real shaker and mover in uh, Germany about the 1830s. He really made a difference in how Germany and Prussia became Germany. And uh, so I just think it's important to kind of certain things, you know, pass along. So was he a Mason? Do you know? Don't know. I've tried to get the records from the lodge there in Seguin to see if he was, because there was a very active lodge there just pre-Civil War. Uh, but so far, uh, no luck. No luck, huh? Yeah. All right. Well, any, uh, any last uh, thoughts you want to leave with people or any other memories you want to share or anything about Masonry? Yeah, actually, 
one of the things that is easy to do, I think, in today's society is stand to the side and watch things happen. It's safe. You know, you're not going to get your nose chopped off and things like that. But we need, we being society, need people to be involved. We're going to, in my opinion, collapse if people don't step up, become involved, become a part of what makes society healthy, what makes society vibrant um, with the people that, you know, just stand on sidelines. My son's middle name is Victor as well. So I'm hoping he wants his portrait. (laughs) And I've been pitching, you know, masoring him for a while, but he's actually right now, he's in South Korea teaching English as a second language to South Korean kids. And he, he graduated from ASU with a degree in electrical engineering. Who knows how that lined up. But I've been pitching to him, you know, become involved. Be a part of society. Don't stand on the sidelines and watch most of it go on. Just get out there in the thick of it. And it's a much more worthwhile life if you do that. I agree. It took me six years to figure that out. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Vic, thanks for allowing me to come into your home and talk to you. Cool, Buff. <laughs>